You're listening to another great message from Northside Community Church. One of my favourite passages in the Bible. We'll see that in a sec and why. Uh, We are in the middle or towards the end of now a series called Fireflies. And we've been learning what it means to just reveal your faith in the everyday. To just go public with your faith in a world that ironically... Ironically, is happy for everyone else to share the things that are fundamental to them and they really love and believe in, uh, but not you Christians. And the challenge for us has been as Christians is that when you come up against a world like that, then the tendency can be for us to do one of two things, either to be obnoxious Christians, uh, the ones that get in your face and aren't all that attractive, uh, but for most of us, the vast majority, we hide. Uh, We hide, we don't reveal our faith, we don't reveal those things that are fundamental to us. And so we've been learning over the weeks that the way that you just reveal your faith is with a familiar transparency. You you go to those that you already know, those who are around you, and you just be who you are. You don't hold back, you don't push it, but you just be who you are. And so this morning, we we come to the the question, ultimately, I think, as we finish off a series... (laughs) It's the ultimate question. We can talk about all the how-tos, but this is the ultimate question. The ultimate question is this, do I have to? <laughs> do I have to? When we, when we get into that context, do I have to share my faith? faith and, and do I have to force the conversation? And well, we'll get the answer for that this morning. Here's where we'll go. It's a two-point sermon this morning, 30% off. Normally a three percenter at spring sale, two-pointer. Just a two-point two sermon. Two things to ask you this morning as we finish Fireflies. And that is, do you love to share and do you share to love? Two points. Do you love to share and do you share to love? If you're asking, do I have to? The first question for you this morning is simply, do you love to share? What we learned in week one, and I know it's a bit of a rehash, but it's important for us to grasp, particularly when half of the church is not sitting here in the chairs in any given Sunday. What we learn in week one is that uh, anyone who has truth, good news is, you do it all the time. I've caught myself already sharing with about five or six or seven friends all of the benefits of the new iPad Pro, which will be released in November. Uh, Sharing's easy. Sharing's easy when you believe that you have a truth that other people should really know about it. You do it with restaurants, you do it with food, you do it on Facebook, you do it on Instagram. Sharing is actually easy is what we've learned. Uh, Sharing your faith is the hard part. But ultimately anyone with truth, good news is at the more serious level we said if uh, doctors share good news all the time, if they believe that they've found the cure for cancer, what do they do? They go to the journals, they publish it, they go and share the good news, they evangelise. Now is it narrow-minded? No, they believe that there is a life-changing, life-transforming truth that they have found and they discovered and they want to share. They love to share. They love to share. Now it's not only that, because that's the point. If there's any truth to Christianity, then our natural inclination is we should just want to be able, we'd want to share that. That's just how it should be. But not only that, that the result of that sharing should be an excitement. And that's where we finished off last week. Look at the way that kids are. When you ask kids, what do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be an astronaut. I want to be a fireman. I want to be a princess. Isn't it funny 
kids always think of their future in terms of a mission, in terms of purpose. And where, where in life do we sign off to that? You see, why is there so much joy? Why is there so much wonder? Why is there so much excitement when they talk about their future that way? There's joy because there's always a link between joy and sentness. Having a big life, a big mission, something to be part of. And so if there is truth, if there is the truth of Christianity that Jesus Christ busted into the world to come and rescue us out of us and tell us that there is life beyond death and that there is something more to this and not only that, that he's gone back to the Father and he's called you and I to be part of that, to go and share that with the rest of the world and it's been changing the world for the past 2,000 years, that gives you a big life. There should be joy and excitement to see people a part of it. It was like that for the disciples. J.I. Packer in his book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, said this, they, the disciples, they didn't need to be told how to do this. They just did it naturally and spontaneously, just as one would naturally and spontaneously share with one's family and friends any other piece of news, like the iPad. He didn't write that, I just threw that in. And that vitally affected them. It was a great privilege to evangelize and to share. They just did it. So, look, if this morning you're ultimately asking, do I have to force the conversation? Do I have to do this? My question to you, is there joy? Is there excitement? Is there wonder? In other words, do you love to share your faith? And if not, why not? And if you look into that, then maybe just maybe this morning, if you're in that time or that season... It's because you're in a season in which God is saying to you, you just need to be reawoken to truth. You're not seeing the big picture. You're not getting caught up like a child in the never-ending story that he's called us to be a part of. Not only that, the, that awakening to the truth, but, but to the truth that you're a part of that never-ending story. So if you don't love to share your faith then that might be the starting point. Am I clear on the truth that I possess and my sense of sentness? And that has been the whole point of this series. If anything, if anything, just to reawaken that in us as a church. Now, I want to put a warning on this because, look, if you're not feeling like you love to share, then for heaven's sake, don't do that this week. If you don't feel like you're in that spot, if you don't feel awoken to that, if you don't feel like you are brimming with that joy and excitement, don't do it. And here's why. Because you can say that you love to share in two totally different ways. One is glorious. One is a shadow of it. One is loving. One is dehumanizing. And maybe you, you've already experienced people like this that say that they love to share, but they are on the spectrum of those obnoxious Christians. Because if we left it here, if we just said, well, do you love to share? Then on one hand, you could be gripped by fear. I better go and share my faith or God will get me. Or on the other hand, you go, well, I, I need to go and share my faith because that Sam guy, he's a compelling speaker and it was a compelling argument and I feel like I should if I've gone all the way to church. And uh, okay. Now, look, if that is the heart by which you come from, please, whatever you do, don't share your faith. <laughs> That's dangerous. It's dangerous and it's destructive. And let me show you. I was, I was chatting to a Northsider. He's, he's here this morning. And I love the way that God ordains these conversations. Uh, he was lucky enough to be uh, in the sights of a Jehovah's Witness over the past couple of months at work. And so this guy had been inviting him out to lunch every Thursday so they could just chat about life. And then that life talked about talking about the J-dubs and, 
and what they believed and what Christianity believed and and they really started to develop a bit of a friendship in all of this and a bit of banter and anyway over the last couple of weeks the the time when the when this north sider finally said look I've got to come clean and I've got to stand firm on my faith and I've got to let him know where I really stand this J Dub turned around to him and he said you know what look if you're going to be like that I don't think we should be doing this anymore and the north side of thought, I thought we were friends. How would you feel if you're on the end of a Christianity that was like that? Maybe some of you have encountered Christians that are like that, and maybe that's half the miracle that you're even here today because you've experienced people like that. You see, if sharing is all truth, but there's no love to it, then people merely become evangelistic cases. It's not glorious, it's not attractive. It's not loving, it's, it's dehumanizing because what are they now? They're a project. Your friends and your family and your colleagues become a project. And it just turns people off. So, <laughs> this is the big question. It's one hand, first question is, do you love, do you love to share? <laughs> Maybe that's just where you need to stay this morning and to process that truth and sentness and be reawoken to that. But the even deeper question is, how do we stop the people that are around us from becoming evangelistic projects or cases. How do we do that? How do we engage people with love? Now, that's why we picked this passage this morning, because Genesis 50, Joseph and his Technicolor Dreamcoat, it's not really like the most evangelistic Bible passage that you could pick. But there is a dynamic in here that we've just got to get. And so not only is it a matter of asking ourselves, do I love to share? But the most fundamental question that we've got to ask ourselves is, do I share in order to love? What I mean by that is I, I, there was a phrase in week one that confused a lot of people. So I'm glad we're coming back to it where I said, look, we don't love people in order to share our faith. We share our faith because we love people. <laughs> And there's a big difference. Loving people, being their friend in order to convert them is exactly what happened with that jade up. And so we must have a love when we engage people. And the question is, well, well, how do we do that? Because this is the challenge also in this series has been. From that Northsider also that inspired us coming back to Fireflies when he said to me at the end of the last series, Sam, I love the truths that you're telling me about. I get it. I sense it. It's right. I believe it. I want to share it. But what do I do when I go into my workplace with people who are vastly different from me? And not only that, people who are almost want to attack me if I let them know what I believe. How do we deal with that? And how do we do it in a way as Christians where on one hand we don't withdraw, that's, that's the least thing we can do from it, but at the most too, how do we do it where we don't judge? And you've got to do what Joseph does here in this passage and here's what he does, he weeps. Here's, here's your litmus test. Do you do what Joseph does? Do you, do you weep for those who are different from you. And this is remarkable what Joseph does. And here's, here's why. What's so remarkable? We need to come back to the story. Some of you probably know it well, but uh, Joseph was a, a naive brat. Uh, he was an arrogant little brat. He was uh, characteristic of those late teens, uh, the way that you can be when you think you know it all in life. My father always used to say that to me, leave home now while you think you know everything. <laughs> That was a saying. That wasn't his, by the way. I need to protect his integrity here this morning. But 
Uh, I can say that because I knew I was an 18-year-old brat and I thought I knew. And Joseph thought that he knew everything, didn't he? In a culture where primogeniture, remember we talked about that, in a culture where the eldest always got everything, Joseph thought it would be a really smart idea to tell all of his older brothers that he had this wonderful dream where one day they would be bowing down and worshipping him as the baby of the family. See how that goes down well. The way it goes down is they sell him into slavery. And then, he, uh, and then in the slavery, he gets sent to jail on some trumped up charges because the lady he's living with takes a liking to him. So not only does he get sold into slavery, uh, trump, trumped up charges. In the meantime, the brothers, it's just started this uh, cycle of family junk that is going on. The father, Jacob, goes into this deep grief and depression. The brothers are feeling guilty with themselves for faking his death. They can see the father is mortified. Meanwhile, things are happening behind the scenes. Joseph has a dream in the jail that he gets sent to eventually, and the prison guard catches onto it, tells Pharaoh, who's the ruler of Egypt at the time. Then there's a discussion with them. Joseph starts interpreting dreams, and eventually he's raised to the position of prime minister of Egypt. And so that's where we join the story from the Bible passage this morning is a great famine had broken out in all the land. And so Joseph's brothers had traveled down to Egypt because there was a great famine. But when they get to that point, they're still so afraid and they're still so guilt-ridden and still, still so depressed with what they have done that they don't even go themselves. They send a message to Joseph and they fake, an, they fake another letter. <laughs> bunch of fakers from dad saying, because dad's just died, well, son, forgive the rest of your brothers and look after them, help them with the, with the famine. And so they don't even go there himself and they lie and Joseph weeps. And this is, what, this is what's so remarkable. How the heck, how the heck does a guy who's had his life totally stuffed up by his brothers, being tortured by them, literally, how does he receive this note from them and still weep? What sort of resource is that? What was he doing? He wept because he saw that the ice of their hearts had never been melted. It was the same old brothers. The same old cycle of junk that was going on in the family life and nothing had changed. And so he's heartbroken. Back to today. Do we weep for those that are around us? Do we look into the lives of people around us and in a non-judgmental way, listen to the love that comes from him? Do we look at the cycles that people are in, the brokenness that people are in, those that are vastly different from us, instead of writing them off, look at the way that for some, ice is covering their hearts and they're stuck in the same patterns and the same brokenness. And do we weep for them rather than judge? So where do we get this resource from? Joseph shows us, Two principles here that if we take this to the depths of our heart could radically change you. It radically changed him. These were things that he was saying to himself that radically transformed the structure of his relationships, the structure of his identity, the structure of his self-worth, the motives of his heart, the pathways of his emotions. These are two questions that if you ask yourself them this week, they could radically change you. Because what, what does Joseph say when he's confronted Eventually, the brothers come in and he's confronted with them. They bow down to him, just like the dream, by the way. <laughs> Great story. They're, con they're confronted by this. They bow down to him. And what does he do? Does, does he say, look, 
boys, it's, it's okay. It, it's all good. Um, I'm the Prime Minister now. Pharaoh gave me the number of a great therapist, and I've been working with him for years, and I've been going through all of these visualization exercises, and I know that you've hurt me, but I've worked really, really hard on all that you've done and said to me over the years, and I'm really at peace with it. I'm here to forgive you. Now, look, on one hand, I don't want to make light of that. There's significance in all of that. But what I do want to highlight is there is a resource that's even deeper than that. And it's this question. What does he say to them? What does he say to them? It says that they're bowing down to him. They threw themselves down at him. We're your slaves, they said. And Joseph said to them, here it is. First question you can ask yourself. He says, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Am I in the place of God? Now, this, is, this is radical. <laughs> because what might cause us Christians to judge rather than weep? What might cause us to withdraw rather than weep from those who are different around us? You see, what I see when we subjectively disengage from someone who's radically different from us in their behavior or their beliefs or their sexuality is that we start to get scared and we get, start to get worried. And you know why? Because deep down in here, there's a little voice inside our hearts that say, I know how things should be. I've got a grid. I've got my way of looking at the world and I know how things should be. And at its worst, that's what creates the obnoxious Christians. But the question is, how do you know how things should be? How, how do you know where they're at? How do you know where their heart is? And so the question is, how do you simply love those who are different? You ask this question, you ask yourself when you come up against that tension, hey, am I in the place of God? Am I the one that can see into this person's heart? Am I the one who can truly judge where they are coming from? You see, Joseph says to the guys, it's okay now, not because I've worked it through, but because he says, I was on the judgment seat and now I got myself off it. I skedaddled out of it and I let God be the judge on his seat. And so in that case, I'll let him deal with all that had happened. That's the main reason why we judge. The main reason why we withdraw is because there's something deep within us, if we're real, that says, I know how things should be with this person. He's saying, I'm in the place of God. You're assuming you're in the place of God. That, that, you know what that is? That's, that's imposter syndrome. Imposter syndrome where it's almost like if you've... Have, have you ever been in a situation where you're, you're in a job or a task where the job is way too big for you and you're totally underqualified and you know it? Let, let's exclude uh, senior ministry for a second from all of this. <laughs> but what happens? You... Um, you, you're, you're anxious, you're fearful, you're always looking over your shoulder. Uh, you, there's never a peace about you. And the Bible says that that's what happens when, in Joseph's story, that's what happens in the self-destructive inner cycles that happen when you put yourself in the place of God. You become fearful, you become judgmental. So, the first question when you come up against some, someone radically different and you need to love them, you want to love them, who am I to judge? I leave that with God. But now we move into my, one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. And many commentators say, and if you read Genesis all the way through, and it's a big book, so it's good that I can summarize for you on a Sunday, but this is the climax of the entire book. 
You don't have to be a commentator to understand this is the climax of everything that was happening in this story in the most remarkable way. Not only does he say, don't be afraid, I'm in the place of God, but here's the second question that you and I can ask ourselves. Here's the second question that we can say to our hearts. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. Let me show you why this goes way beyond the first question. A commentator said that God had all the strings in hand, but the guidance of God incorporated all of man's evil into his saving activity. This is off the charts. This is ridiculous. This is, this is saying God doesn't just stop evil in the world. He humiliates it. He humiliates it by taking all of the evil things that will happen throughout history and instead of burning them up and instead of getting rid of them and instead of chucking them out, he will actually use them and warp them in the holy way that he does into something that is perfect and good. There is no greater demonstration of radical power. This is off the charts. This is incredibly comforting. Because what it means is all of the stuff-ups, all of your failures, all of the stings, all of those things are going to be used. All of those things can be used. All of those things are being used by God. That's the Mr. Squiggle principle. Right, church, we know it by now, surely. If you're not from Australia, then you're going to have to look him up on the internet. <laughs> but he was a wonderful puppet character that three-year-olds would send you this messed up, screwed up drawing. And he would work away on it and you would think that it was one just big scribble. And at the end of it, what would be said? Oop, upside down. <laughs> and this puppet would walk around and you would, you would turn all of these scribbles and this mess on this artwork and upside down and it would turn into a beautiful picture. You intended it for harm. God intended it for good. What it says is all of those marks on your life, all of, all of the stings, all the stuff-ups, all of the hurts, he's the ultimate Mr. Squiggle. There will come a point, and this is what happened with Joseph, where if it weren't for the slavery, if it weren't for the trumped-up charges, if it weren't for going to the prison, they're all squiggles on this white bit of paper. They're all things that were going horribly wrong in his life, in the seeming absence of God. And God says, upside down, I'm using this. Now, that is incredible, powerful for us as Christians. Because we're living in a world at the moment where there's a lot of atrocities happening towards Christians, right? There's a, there's a lot of horrible stuff and there's a lot of reasons for us to get angry. In fact, we live in a world when we talk about some of the big issues in our society at the moment where people are angry. And the reason that others are angry and, the, and Christians have the power not to be is because we have this incredible perspective of God's sovereignty of, of the way that he is working all things for his good. There will be a mountain at the end of time. There will be a mountain at the end of the time where, where, where Jesus will be able to take you up and you can look back at all of the different rivers in your life that somehow didn't intersect or didn't quite go right and all the questions that didn't seem to be answered there and it all will make perfect sense from a distance, to use the line from the great Bette Midler. 
what it means for you is even if, and for us, even if the world is not going as we intended right now in society, church, even if the world feels like, and some of you have lived long enough that this feels real to you. Some of you have lived long enough in church to know that there was a time when there was a local church on every corner, that there was a time where it was okay to share your faith, that there was a time in which people just had good, sound, upstanding values and it feels like society's crumpling. And yet the great promise of Scripture is whenever Christianity seems to be pushed to the edges, whenever Christians seem to be moving into seemingly impossible situations, that's when God is at his most powerful. When we see it from that perspective, we don't judge those that are around us. We love them. We love them. And so on one hand, we have a truth that we still want to share. But even when they're radically different from us, even if they may hurt us in the process, we know that there is a bigger picture. And we know that because we see this. We see this as we finish this morning in what happened to Joseph. You see, the lesson's not learnt here. Stop for a second. <laughs> Stop. The lesson's not learnt. We're not done because he says, "What you intended for harm, God intended for good." Question class: uh, What was the good? What good happened from all of this? He says, "You intended to harm me, but God intended me for good to accomplish what is now being done—the saving of many lives. The saving of many lives." You see, we we need to learn from this. We don't read this correctly. You intended for harm, God intended it for good. So far, Joseph's in, pow in power. It's as if these horrible things hadn't happened anymore. He's now got power. He's now got money. All things are right. We Western individualized people, we would say, well, that's a good story because um, it at least helped Joseph's self-esteem. Uh, it's a good story because uh, well, it just feels good. It's, it's, a, it's a good story because... Well, it worked out in the end and it really helped form his character and it was a good learning experience. And that's not how Joseph saw it. What we see in a guy who's not only forgiving, but a guy who was, who's finally seen and it's finally clicked for him. He says, now I see that there is purpose in my life. That all of the stings and all of the junk and all of the things that have happened to me are being used for God's purpose hey i had lunch with one of uh, the young adult girls she's a newer christian to all of this all of this she's just new to it it's fresh to the mix and we had lunch on thursday and she said sam i got the message last week and i get that i'm being sent but i i just don't know who i'm being sent to what do i do i go overseas do i go to madagascar do i miss can you just tell me who i'm sent to and I said, Kat, yeah, look, God is sending you in some ways, but the passage you'll hear this Sunday is that God not only sends you out, but God is sending people into you. What this means, it means all of the people that you happen to be around, all those you work with, those you live with, those you're related to, those that you are near, they're there by God's appointment. What it means is multiple saving in all of this, a saving of many lives. That there was multiple levels of saving. There was a saving of Joseph's character. There was a saving of his brothers and the family dynamic. There was a saving of their character in it all. There was a saving of a nation from famine in all of this. Can you see the multiple levels that God was working to save people? It wasn't purely about salvation. And what that means for you and I is just being a firefly means we save at multiple levels. 
You may be a firefly. You may reveal your faith at the end of all of this. You may not see someone come to the Lord straight away. But what this means, it means this. Look, Ephesians 2.10, another great verse of the Bible says, For you are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good deeds that he has prepared in advance for you to do. Isn't that a picture of his sovereignty and what was happening here with Joseph? His workmanship, it means God's piece of art. It, it, the Greek word's poema, his poem. What it means is you are as unique as a snowflake. You... You're a godly thumbprint. And what it means for all of the stings and the stuff-ups and the sighs in life, God is using that. What, what was intended for harm maybe in your life, God is intending for good. He has put these people around so that you could be a firefly. There are people that you just need to listen to. There are people that you might need to boldly proclaim to. And in some cases, there are people who just are going to need to watch you. But you see, these things are happening for the saving of many lives. Look, firefly, there are beds only you can sit beside. There are hands only you can hold. There are conversations that only you can listen to. There are friendships that only you can speak into. There are contexts into which only you can go. So go, Firefly, go. Do you love to share? That's the first question. Do you love to share? If you need to work that out, work it out this morning. But most of all, for heaven's sake, may we get it right, church. But we, may we share because we love. Let's pray.